Even if you're not a fan of superhero movies, you've got to marvel at what the folks over at Marvel Studios have accomplished earlier this year with their film, Avengers Infinity War. I don't say you have to like the movie, but what they've done has never been done before in the history of cinema. From a movie-making standpoint, it's pretty dramatic. For over a decade, the studio has been working out a plan of bringing together dozens of beloved characters that have been featured in 18 different movies, culminating in a blockbuster hit that was praised by over 80% of movie critics that reviewed it, and over 90% of the 48,000 fan reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, The movie's described this way there on the page. An unprecedented cinematic journey, 10 years in the making, Avengers Infinity War ably juggles a dizzying array of heroes, and the result is a thrilling, emotionally resonant blockbuster that mostly realizes its gargantuan ambitions. And so, if you're heading into college in the next couple of years and you're going to take a film history class. As far as film history goes, they packed more into one movie than perhaps has ever been done before. It was kind of an interesting thing to think about. Now, the book of Daniel is relatively short in comparison to the other major prophets or other uh, books in the Old Testament, especially the books of the law or the books of history, the Psalms, right? You can get through the book of Daniel just sitting in about an hour, You can listen to it or you can read it yourself. Uh, But when you read through it, you find that there is an incredible amount of material in its 12 chapters. It is just absolutely bursting at the seams on all of these different layers. By the time you read the last verse of the book, you've been exposed to not only some of the most memorable stories in the Bible, but also the memoirs of a war refugee, an ancient history lesson on one of the great cities and empires of the world, Babylon, a study of fulfilled prophecy concerning Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, prophecy concerning the first and second comings of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, a great deal of prophecy concerning the end of human history, covering the tribulation the reign of the Antichrist, and the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. You'll see God's dealings with the nation of Israel, God's plan for the Gentile nations. You'll learn things concerning the doctrines of suffering, of calling, of angels, of sovereignty. You'll see vivid examples of what it means to be faithful as a believer, what it means to pray, how to evangelize, how to live life with integrity in your day-to-day life, how to trust God, You'll see what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. You'll see what biblical holiness looks like. You learn how to live with self-control, how to show grace to your enemies, how to forgive, how to be at peace with those around you as far as is possible for you. You'll see great and astonishing visions from heaven. Oh, and there's theophany in there too, which is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And all of that in an hour of reading. I mean, so Infinity War has got nothing on the book of Daniel. Now, generally speaking, the book divides pretty neatly into two halves. You have the first six chapters and then the following six chapters. Chapters one through six are largely telling stories of things that happened to Daniel and his three friends. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That wasn't their real names, but that's how we know them. And then chapters 7 through 12 focus mostly on the prophetic visions of the future that Daniel receives which give us insight into the flow of human history from the Babylonian empire that he found himself in all the way through to the great tribulation, which is yet future to us, and the second coming of Jesus to earth. 
Now, when it comes to Bible prophecy, we cannot overstate Daniel's importance. We just can't. It's perhaps the most significant prophetic book, not just in the whole Old Testament, but, but it is the key to understanding prophecy in the Bible, Old and New Testament together. Dr. John Walvoord writes this, the book of Daniel is essential to the structure of prophecy and is the key to the entire Old Testament prophetic revelation. Daniel alone reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and Israel. The book brings together and interrelates great themes of prophecy as does no other portion of Scripture. Daniel's book is so key and so significant and so accurate, it has understandably been the target of attack from those who refuse to believe the Bible, especially since the 17th century. Up until the 17th century, uh, there was pretty much just one guy who ever suggested that Daniel wasn't written by Daniel in the time that he said he wrote it. And it was a guy who he wrote 16 or 17 volumes of books called Against Christians. He was a pagan uh, in the early centuries, and he hated Christianity, and he wrote all these books. And he was the one person who said, Daniel didn't write what Daniel wrote. No one could know the things that he knew. Other than that, there is no suggestion until the 17th century that Daniel wasn't who he said he was and that it wasn't written when uh, it says it was. And then in the 17th century, you have something enter into the world scene that is called higher criticism. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, where now human beings got so smart, they realized, oh, we can just have higher criticism. And we can assume that everything we read in the scriptures is, is the opposite. We all live in opposite world now. But from the 17th century forward, there have been a lot of attacks on Daniel. Why? Well, because Daniel is incredibly specific in many of its prophecies, naming empires distinctly and naming them in order before they came onto the world scene. And Daniel, as a prophecy, has been altogether right about those prophecies concerning things that have already happened. Daniel has a lot of prophecies concerning the times of the end, right before the coming of Christ, the second time to the earth. But all of these other prophecies dealing with world empires, dealing with the first coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, have all been absolutely right on, and not in a vague sense, but specifically, he says, here's what's going to happen. Babylon, you're a world empire, and then the Medo-Persians are going to become an empire, and then after that, the Greeks are going to become the world-dominating empire, and then that empire is going to split into four, and here's how it's going to work. And he foretold these things decades and hundreds of years before they happened, and then it all flowed exactly as Daniel said. And so critics who refuse to believe the Bible, who come to the Holy Scriptures and say, well, listen, no human being can know the future, and so let's explain how could this book of Daniel exist? Well, it must have been written hundreds and hundreds of years after it says it was written. It must have been written by somebody else. It must have been falsified. And there have been a lot of attacks on the book of Daniel. And since they believe a writer cannot know the future, they try their best to prove Daniel was not written in the time or by the man that it says it was. Rather, it must have been faked many centuries later. Unfortunately for them, the weight of evidence and archaeology and logic and truth stands against all of their claims. In hundreds of years of people trying to suggest that Daniel is a false book, they have yet to make any conclusive charge against the reliability of the book. That hasn't been answered. They've got a real problem with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They say, well, Daniel couldn't have been written when it was. It must have been written hundreds and hundreds of years later. 
And then a little thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And fragments of the book of Daniel were part of that. And of course, they don't talk about that very much. But for several hundred years, there have been uh, a number of uh, God-denying critics who say, well, this is just all a fake book. It has to be a fake book because if it's not a fake book, that means that God is real and that he is true and that he has revealed himself and that he shares prophecy. He shares history in advance with certain people and we refuse to believe that. But for hundreds of years, as they've volleyed these attacks against the book, not one of them will stick. And in fact, archaeology and other evidence and logic breaks down all of their claims. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the refutation of the critics as we go through these passages. If you want to dive into that, I'd really recommend Dr. John Walvard's commentary. He takes time to dismantle those claims, and uh, it's always good to read Walvard. If just anytime you can read John Walvard on anything, especially prophecy, uh, read his stuff. But instead, when we look at this book, we want to feast on the remarkable texts here and enjoy each portion, being encouraged on the many levels that it will address us as readers. You know, Daniel is mostly categorized in our minds as a book of prophecy, and we see it, how it's organized in our Bible, right? It's with the major prophets. We think, okay, Daniel, Daniel's a book about prophecy. That's true, And as students of prophecy, it is incredibly valuable, but it's not just a prophetic book. It's a book of many wonderful treasures, which not only enrich our understanding of the future, but will also enhance our day-to-day lives right now, because it's not just a timeline. It's not just an apocalypse. It's the story of important characters. We see these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, each of these fellows give us immense, profound lessons on how to live life or how not to live life in the case of those two kings. Now, as we turn to our text, here's how the book opens. Verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. The year is 605 or 606 BC, right around there. Nebuchadnezzar would lay siege to Jerusalem three times before it was completely destroyed. This here in our text was the first time. It had been prophesied by Isaiah 80 or 100 years earlier that this was going to happen. We can read about it in 2 Kings. King Hezekiah made a pretty dumb mistake. Some people from Babylon came, and he said, hey, guys from Babylon, you don't want to see my treasure? And he showed them all the treasures of all, you know, Jerusalem, everything that they had stored up, all the treasure in the temple, all the treasure in the palace. Well, when you're a Babylonian and you see a big honeypot full of treasure, you get, get home and you say, we should probably go get that treasure, Right? Well, he had done that, and Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah and says, hey man, what's going on here? Who are those guys? Oh, those are the Babylonians. Yeah, you know what's going to happen now? They're going to come, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. They're going to take all of your treasure, and they're going to take a bunch of your sons and bring them to be eunuchs in the land of Babylon. And that was 80 or 100 years before Daniel 1 verse 1. Isaiah said specifically it would happen. It did happen. Babylon would come and take the treasure of Jerusalem and the young men of the noble classes. Now, Daniel and his three friends were among those young men taken as prisoners 
of war. We don't know how many were taken, but it was more than just the four of them. That'll be important in a couple of the stories coming up uh, in our passages as we go through this series. But they would have been about 15 or 16 years old, scholars estimate. By chapter 12, Daniel's going to be an old man in his 80s. He's still serving the Lord, still hearing from God, still receiving insight from the Scriptures. That's a great, great encouragement for us. But these four Hebrews are going to show us an unblemished example of how to live a faithful, believing life, no matter the circumstances that we face. Now, sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating to read the, uh, what we might think of the more polished characters in the Old Testament. It's true. I mean, oftentimes people say, hey, Daniel, he's one of those guys who no sin is recorded in his story. Well, in one sense that's true. In another sense it's not because he confesses his sin in one of his prayers. We'll get there. But it's true. There's no big blunder recorded for us. There's no, you know, big moment of failure. There's no Bathsheba. There's no striking the rock in the stories of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's true. But of course, we know, and Daniel will be the very first to say, well, hey, he wasn't perfect. Of course, he made mistakes. He didn't walk in absolute perfection because no man other than Jesus Christ could walk in perfection, right? But these guys are going to give us an example, a great example, unblemished, of how to live a faithful life as a believer, no matter the circumstances. They show us what it means to have a faith that can endure. You know, their trust in God wasn't just a bumper sticker. It wasn't just something they kind of said emptily to themselves. The, the trust they had in God had legs that they could stand on. They went from being in the ruling class of Israel to prisoner eunuchs in a pagan empire, and their faith remained constant. They would see the king's favor one day and his fury the next, and they were still faithful. They would find themselves executing the law in the morning and then face execution under the law in the afternoon, and they remained faithful. They would face temptation, isolation, pressure, hatred, but, you know, they're also, in different times of their experience, were going to be given wealth, expertise, influence, position. These guys were high-ranking, successful guys. They live on the pages of Scripture as examples to us in all of these settings. What does it mean to be a faithful believer in youth or in old age? What does it mean to trust God when you're the most successful person in the room or the most persecuted person in the country? How are we to operate as servants of Jesus Christ who also have to work a secular job? What does it really mean to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? These guys prove and demonstrate that these things can be done. It can be done. The Christian life, the life we're called to as, as believers, as disciples, it can be done. These guys prove it. That's really important. And it can be done with boldness, with integrity, and in such a way that lives are changed by the power of the gospel. Now, if you're like me... You hear that and you see that and then you're prone to think, I'm prone to think, well, sure, Daniel can do that. He's Daniel. He's special after all. I'm not like him. He's like Captain America, right? He got some kind of special spiritual serum that we don't know about. He's a hero after all. We name our children after him. We tell his story in every generation and in every culture around the world, right? Right? 
That's what I'm prone to think. But you know what? One of my favorite things about this book is that, and hear me say this, these guys were not special. Not even by Bible standards. They weren't special. Their stories are amazing. What God did through them is awe-inspiring. But I'd submit to you that among the Old Testament characters, Daniel and his three friends are perhaps more like us than all of the others. How many of you have thousands of flocks and herds that you take care of? How many of you have seen God face to face before he goes to destroy a city? I mean, think about these guys for a second. They were just guys living life. They got done with school, found themselves in a government job. They were mostly minding their own business all the time when all these things start happening to them and then the Lord works through them. They weren't wonder workers like Moses or Elijah. They weren't giant slayers like King David. They weren't conquerors like Joshua. They were just guys being carried along in life, living life, experiencing circumstances they probably wouldn't have designed for themselves. But hey, that's life. I live in Babylon now. I'm working my job now. I have some friends and have these other things going on. And and they're just living life. But then they're defined by one characteristic. They really had one defining characteristic. It comes back to us again and again as we go through the texts. It's given to us seven times, in fact, in the book. Here's one of those times. King Belteshazzar brings Daniel into his party to to distinguish the writing on the wall. It's in chapter 5. And here's what he says, very important. He says, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you. There it is. That's the secret. And Daniel's spirit, his excellent spirit, the spirit of God in him, seven times that spirit is in, in Daniel is referenced as a descriptor. The other descriptor we get of these guys all the time is that they were just servants of the Most High God. All the time, people referring to them, they're servants of the Most High God in whom is this excellent spirit. It was God's Spirit empowering these guys, leading these guys, showing them how to navigate these seemingly impossible circumstances. One of the things I hope we have fun with as we go through some of these stories, especially in the first half, is, man, if, if you think you're having trouble at work, <laughs> these dudes have trouble at work. We were joking earlier, it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get fired. No, these guys got fired. <laughs> they were literally fired. And one of my very favorite things, I'm going to ruin my, one of my, the things I wanted to save, but they go back to work the next day. Has your boss ever thrown you into a fiery furnace and then you go back to work the next day and say, hey man, remember yesterday? Crazy. <laughs> Has your boss ever gotten a, a bunch of those lions and said, all right, we're going to feed you to these lions. And then on Monday, you're like, hey man. I brought some jerky to work. (laughs) And these guys, they navigate these seemingly impossible circumstances like it's no big deal. In fact, in most of the stories, they're almost passive in all of them. They say almost nothing. They do almost nothing. They're just like, yeah, whatever happens is fine. We're not worried about it. We're not afraid. We trust the Lord. Here's what we're going to do. It's a pretty remarkable set of stories, and they show us that the Spirit of God can fill and empower and help us navigate all the circumstances of life, no matter how impossible they seem from the human perspective. It was the Spirit that was using their situations to bring the knowledge of God to their city, to this empire. And in each of these stories, we see that Daniel and his friends 
simply make a heart decision to go God's way, to honor their Lord and obey Him, and then it is God who accomplishes the rest. He's the one that does the great things in and through them. No secret serum that they take, no infinity stone they have to find. They're just guys. They're just guys who show up and say, you know what? I was a servant of the Lord in Jerusalem. I'm going to be a servant of the Lord in Babylon, and I'm going to make the choice in my heart to honor my God No matter who's king, no matter if I'm being persecuted or if I'm being promoted, I'm going to honor the Lord. And you know what? We can do that. We can do that. They prove to us that we can do that. This is a most important lesson for us as Christians because this same offer, this same, you know, program is available to us. We find ourselves in some job in some city Maybe it's where you want to be. Maybe it's not where you want to be. No matter the circumstances, the Lord offers us His Holy Spirit to fill us and build us and lead us and shape us and empower us and direct us. Why? So that we can be victorious in our lives and so that He can then accomplish His plan through us. Daniel shows us that it's not always easy, to be sure. Their life wasn't always easy. In fact, they had some lumps. I mean, they, they were the, some of the biggest losers of the Old Testament, the things that were taken away from them, their families, their home, their country, their manhood, their freedom, their lives, except for that the Lord spared them. I mean, it was all taken. Passage after passage, we see things are taken, 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 and then, you know, the world would come along and say, okay, you're promoted, and then a few passages later, we're taking that away. We're going we're gonna to get you killed. We're going to get you arrested. We're going to get you in trouble. I mean, so if you were tallying the score from a human perspective, these guys lost a whole, whole lot. And so it wasn't always easy to live their lives, but it always was possible. The same filling that was available to Daniel is available to us. In fact, we have an even better arrangement on this side of the cross as the Spirit permanently indwells God's people now. And because we now have the completed revelation of Scripture, which gives us way more information and context and direction and inspiration than Daniel had back in 605 BC. Daniel didn't have the book of Daniel to read to help him navigate all these situations. We do. Think of the small amount of revelation that Daniel had. I mean, it's easy for us to think, well, I want to have a vision of an angel. Okay, that'd be cool if the Lord did that. But, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds more pages of revelation than Daniel did. We have all of this perspective and all of this understanding. We have the clarity of, 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 of the completed revelation brought to us. That guys like Daniel and his three friends, they had no idea. They didn't know the Savior's name. They didn't know how he was going to come and give his life and how the resurrection and all of that was going to work. But they were faithful still. They had power still. They walked in victory still. And here's what we notice about Daniel and his friends. Along the way, as they are living out their faith and enjoying the power of the Spirit in their lives, they are thankful people. They are gracious people. They are effective people. They're not fearful. When they're getting thrown into fires and thrown into the lion's den, they're not fearful. They're casual. They're fine with it. They're like, hey, the Lord is the Lord. We trust the Lord. It's such a great, great testimony for us. Even when they're being made into eunuchs, cast in the lion's dens, into fiery furnaces, there's no anxiety, there's no desperation. Their faith had legs. 
and they stand strong, which means that you and I can too, because we have a God who loves us and treasures us and is able to do all things according to his good pleasure. If he could do it then, he can do it now. And it pleases our God to do work in us, to make you and I into monuments of his love and power and grace, just like he did with Daniel. We look back at the testimony of Daniel and say, look what God did in the life of Daniel. And what does Jesus say to us? He's like, and that's what I want to do through your life. I want to build a testimony, a monument to myself, to my love and my grace and my power and my ability. I want to build that monument through your life so that others can then look at you the way that you look at Daniel. That's a remarkable thing. It didn't require that they get some sort of special certification. It didn't require that they beat out thousands of competitors. They didn't have to prove they were worthy of being used. No, they just made the decision in their hearts to go God's way. They decided from the beginning that they would be servants of the Most High God no matter what. And from there, the Lord took over. The Lord did what he wanted to do through them. And he took even mundane things like their personal prayer lives and brought an incalculable amount of eternal fruit from it. We're still talking about Daniel's personal prayer life. The fact that he went home and prayed three times a day privately has changed countless lives for thousands of years. God used their suffering to save the soul of one of the most wicked tyrants in human history. Nebuchadnezzar's like Thanos. <laughs> He's like a crazed, nut-job tyrant who did whatever he wanted. At one point there, he's going to be described in the book, you kill who you want at will. And he did. He was Nebuchadnezzar, this fearful tyrant. And the Lord allowed some suffering in the lives of these four servants of his. And you know what the result was? Maybe the most wicked man in all the world got saved and wrote a gospel tract that went out to his entire empire. The point is this. We want to be characters like Daniel, right? And the amazing thing is that we can be. That's what I hope we take away from our studies in this book alongside a greater knowledge of God's plan for this, this world that is yet future. We're going to get a lot of that. It's going to culminate in the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has not abandoned us. But that Lord who wants to use us, he's coming. And he's coming with a kingdom. He's coming with his reward in his hand. And we get to serve him today as he fills us and uses us, just like Daniel and his friends served him as he filled them and used them. We may be in a land we don't really want to be in. We may find ourselves in a job we wish we didn't have to go to. These guys can speak to us about that. But we can see vibrant, strong, amazing faithfulness. Not because they were any better than us or so different than us. They're just guys who chose to be faithful, who chose to obey God, and chose to trust God and said, you know what? We trust our God. And even though you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you, Darius, and you, Belteshazzar, you think our God is defeated, you took his cups and bowls into the house of your God, that doesn't mean anything, because our God is the only God who's alive, and he's alive in us. And because of that, they were able to be the characters we're going to learn about in this series. <laughs>